This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. You've probably heard this before. That's George Gershwin's Summertime, and it's one of the most recognizable pieces from Porgy and Bess. The show tells the story of an impoverished black community in South Carolina. You can see a version of Porgy and Bess now in Aurora. And as CPR's Stephanie Wolf explains, this production coincides with recent talks about diversity, or lack of it, in Denver Metro Theater. You can see the Gershwin's Porgy and Bess at the Aurora Fox Art Center now. But Donnie Betts, who directs the show, says he had reservations about taking it on. Same controversy that has been with Porgy and Bess since the first was produced in the 30s still stay with it now. Here's the thing. Two white men wrote and composed this as an opera in the 1930s. Some called it racist when it debuted in 1935. And since its premiere, people continue to debate if the show reinforces negative stereotypes. The reason why I was attracted to it now was because Susan Lloyd Parks. Let me save you a Google search. Parks is a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer. She reworked Porgy and Best almost six years ago. She stripped out derogatory language and rewrote a few scenes. Betts, who is Black, says the story at its core is still relevant. It's about a community that's trying to survive and thrive against all odds. The New York's Metropolitan Opera originally commissioned Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. He wanted to mount it with an all-African-American cast. But at that time, white singers performed in blackface at the Met. So the show opened on Broadway. And that brings us to the heart of this story, about theaters in 2016 reflecting the world around them. But how do you think Denver compares to, say, one of the larger theater scenes, maybe even New York or Seattle or Chicago? Poorly. So let's talk about New York. It's a multicultural city with a vibrant theater scene. Yet recent studies show that New York stages don't reflect that diversity, although it's slowly improved over the last decade. Colorado doesn't have that research, but there's long been a concern here that the theater community doesn't reflect the state's changing population. Charles Packer is the executive producer of the Aurora Fox, where Betts directs this version of Porgy and Bess. Packer says next to the Porgy and Bess cast, I am conspicuously white. Packer leads a theater organization in one of the most diverse cities in Colorado. He says he's made it a priority to bring many voices to the stage. Any theater, anywhere, if it's truly serving the community, it's going to reflect the community. It's going to look like what's going on there. That comes with a learning curve. Traditionally, your main audience is upper middle class, white, highly educated. And there are people that don't feel invited to the theater. And there are shows that have taken their culture and sold it to a white audience. They're not necessarily proud of those stories. Packard says he approaches diverse programming with an open heart and acknowledges what he doesn't know. Ask Betts what a diverse theater looks like, and he'll tell you there's a lot of work to be done. There's not enough managing directors. There's not enough producers, uh, not enough directors, not enough people in decision-making areas. That's an area that still has to be cracked. So who's behind the scenes at the Aurora Fox? Uh, We have five full-time, one part-time, and every single one of them is white. That's... (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
So your next question was, am I embarrassed by that? Absolutely. Packard says he hired the best people available when jobs opened. Talk about diversifying theater has been going on for years in Colorado and across the country. Teresa Eyring leads the national nonprofit Theater Communications Group, which has a program focused on diversity, inclusion, and equity. Eyring says there's no handbook on how to have these conversations. Her advice? Making sure that the communities whose work and whose lives and identities are going to be part of the discussion need to be brought in to say, does this make sense? These conversations can get uncomfortable and people get frustrated. Denver Sheila Traster knows this frustration well. She directed a multiracial cast in Arabian Nights at the Aurora Fox last spring. She'd like to see more action come out of these conversations. How much more time do we need? The Declaration of Independence was written on July 4th, 1776. The Civil War ended in 1865. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act is signed. And people keep telling us, me, give it more time. How much more time? It's just something that you do. After a recent panel discussion in Denver about diversity in theater, people exchanged cards and talked about forming groups. But right now, there's no answer to how much more time it will take to make Colorado stages more inclusive. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. These conversations about diversity and inclusion don't end nor begin at race. We're joined now by Angela Astell. She founded the Athena Project in Denver. It's an organization focused on art made for and by women. Astell released a study earlier this year that surveyed the racial and gender makeup of playwrights, directors, and managers at theaters in the Rocky Mountain region. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. There have been other studies that have been produced before. Why did you commission your own? Well, um, in looking at the studies that had been done before, it's they're all very coastal. So it's New York, it's Chicago, it's D.C., it's L.A. Um, and those are very different markets than even what we have here in Denver, let alone the Rocky Mountain region. And so we really tried to focus on what's going on in our own backyard so that we can figure out, well, how do we compare and give us a benchmark so we have a starting place? Because we don't have the data as accurately reflected in our in our own backyard in the way that we wanted it to. So to gather this data, you sent the survey to theaters that met three specific criteria. Uh, briefly, what qualified a theater to participate in the study and why these three things? Okay. Yeah. So the criteria were that the, th- the theater must produce at least two productions per season, and a season was defined as September 1st through August 31st. Mm-hmm. The theater must produce at least six performances of each production. And then the final criteria was that the theater must have been in existence for three years. Um, The reason we came up with these criteria were to eliminate the startup companies that kind of get together just to do one show. Mm. And then all of a sudden they do that one play and and everything kind of dissipates after that or even one or two. Um, And so we didn't want to necessarily skew the data. We wanted to look at the theaters that had been doing what they've been doing for a while. Um, And also because we wanted to also attach some criteria to it. Um, A lot of the studies that have been done on the national level have come from classifying certain groups of theaters. So Dramatist Guild did a study that was um, a theater communication group related study. Uh-huh. There was another study done uh, that reflected LORT theaters, which is League of Resident Theaters. And so everybody's got their different ways of sort of looking at the data, which is actually one of the problems on a national level, why we all can't 
compare apples to apples because we're all kind of coming up with different criteria and putting it together. So for our purposes, it was, all right, well, let's figure out what is our criteria and then how do we match that criteria to what else is going on? And what we realized is that there's not been a study quite like this (laughs) that's been done. And your study found that about 27 percent of the plays produced in the Rocky Mountain region were written by women. Mm -hmm. And when you look at women of color, it goes down to 13 percent. Correct. Um, I understand there were two aspects of your study that surprised you, uh, and both came out of looking at female leadership positions. Mm -hmm. How are women generally doing when it comes to leading a theater organization in this area? Yeah, um, that is a great question. Um, So we pull data for artistic directors, managing directors and producers as a combined category, and then directors, as well as the playwrights, which was kind of the core groups that we were looking at. And the surprising data was that in the artistic directors category, there were 59% of women are actually artistic directors in the theater company. So that seems good. That seems really good. (laughs) Um, And similarly, in the managing directors and producers category, it was also 64% um, were also so women. Where we when we started digging a little bit deeper into, okay, so since that was a surprise, let's yeah. figure out what else is going on. The reality is that both of these positions tend to be underfunded. So these are women that are doing theater because they're passionate about it and they, you know, decide, well, I'm not getting into the regional theaters or I'm not getting into the Lort theaters or any of the other areas. And so they tend to start up start up and say, let's let's do it. Um, and so the pay isn't as equitable as you would like to see. Um, in addition, when you get to the women of color in those positions, it's abysmal. Um, the artistic directors, there were 0% of artistic directors of color. Um, and granted, this is those who responded to the survey. So we recognize that the sampling is is still small, but it's still horrifying to, to know that there aren't any women of color that are paying attention to um, either, you know, they're not aware of that we're doing this and they're not necessarily responding because Probably they don't exist. <laughs> they don't exist. Yes. And did that surprise you? It did. I, I tend to work with a lot of um, people of color, and particularly since the organization has been founded, we make that a priority to look at casting for the best possible person for the job, not necessarily casting because someone um, is white or not. Um, and so our latest production was a great reflection of that. It was a Latina player or Latina director, um, and it was a different first cast. Um, and we had two female leads that were both uh, Asian. And so it was it was very it, it needs to happen, basically. I mean, the frustration is that it's not happening very often. And it's very easy to do if you have your eyes open to seek it out. So you're raising awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, but is there one realistic goal you'd like to achieve with the study beyond awareness? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think for us, it was um, the giving us a benchmark was a place to start. So we wanted to be able to go, OK, everybody's talking about it as if it's assumed, but let's let's put some numbers to that conversation. And you have that now. Now we have that. So now what we want is to continue the continue doing the study so that we can see movement in these numbers so that we can track that they're actually going up. And because of the raising of awareness that's happening audience members are going to think about what shows are they going to? Are they going to theater where theater is producing diverse um, diverse playwrights? Are they attending shows that are written by women? Um, the theater companies themselves are being asked to look at what they're programming in a way that they've never had before. And 
and that audience isn't going to come. Hopefully, if the, the if the audience if the sorry the audience isn't going to come if the shows aren't reflective of their community and their own worlds. So is it the responsibility then of the people buying the tickets and sitting in the seats to? I guess, foster a change if you see that change is needed? I think that they can certainly help. Mm. That's one of our action items that we have um, published with the results of the survey. Action items. Yes, because we we basically felt like there is a lot of conversation that is happening. And to Sheila's point in the in the story earlier, it's like, it's a lot of talk and not enough action. And so we put our brain caps on and went, okay, what can we do? What's a tangible thing that we can encourage people to do to create change and to move forward a difference in both the representation on stage and as well as the audience's awareness of the topic. So one of the easiest things was the pocketbook. Um, if you're, you know, going to see theater, have an awareness that you're going to see theater, that it's a it's a woman's story, it's a woman's voice that you're hearing on stage, or it's a person of color that you're hearing on stage. Pay attention to that and then support the theaters that are really putting the effort into making that happen. So it seems then you're all under the same umbrella of the performing arts and, and, and the same goals of expression and ideals. So you're actually saying that that people should not see shows that that are are that maybe the 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 company is not diverse. I think that it's it's possible to create change and force a company mm. to look a little harder at what they're programming if the ticket buyers aren't there. Ultimately, art is for everyone, and the way the way that we're trying to showcase art and is to be reflective of the community. If it's not reflective of the community, then you're not hearing all sides of the story, whether that's women's voices or people of color's voices, and. And so if the only way to get the the companies to listen as far as what they're programming on stage is to hit them in their pocketbooks with, well, I'm not going to go. And if you don't have money to if you don't have ticket buyers coming in, then you don't have money to produce the work in the first place. And what good is it if it's not being shared? Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Angela Astle is the founder and executive producer of the Denver arts organization, The Athena Project. She commissioned a study that looked at the gender and racial makeup of theater groups in the Rocky Mountain region. CPR News will be reporting more about Colorado's theater community and diversity, and you can help. What shows have you seen in Colorado that have really stuck with you? Tell us at our Facebook page or email us at arts at CPR.org. Just ahead, the first time Bob Dylan came to Denver, he did make a very good first impression. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Back in 1960, Bob Dylan, then a relatively unknown folk singer, packed his bags and drove more than 900 miles from Minneapolis, Minnesota to Denver. Eventually, he was, quote, run out of Denver for robbing a cat's house. His words. Tim Fritz is a Denver freelance writer and filmmaker and a Dylan fan. He wrote about the singer's first visit to Denver for Westward. It's called Passin' Through, Bob Dylan's ill-fated summer in Denver. Tim, welcome. Thank you. Tomorrow, Dylan will receive this year's Nobel Prize in Literature, but when he came to Denver, he was just starting his career. Nobody knew who he was. You've read multiple Dylan biographies and have done a lot of research around his time in Denver. What drew him to Colorado? Well, there's speculation out there that... um, a uh, local musician, Walt Connolly, was dating a girl or seeing a girl back in Dinkytown as he was touring the country. In Minneapolis. Yes. And she suggested he go to Denver and look up Walt Connolly when he gets there. So that story's out there. There's one that's just uh, 
Denver was a burgeoning folk scene, and he would have just known about it, as I suggest in the article. Mm. So Dylan arrives in Denver, and he visits the Satire Lounge. Correct. Uh, that's a musical venue in East Colfax, where he meets, uh, meets uh, Walt Conley, a singer, and also uh, uh, kind of, I think he ran the club. Right? Yes. So Conley agrees to let Dylan perform at the Satire. Uh, then what happened? Well, he opens for the Smothers Brothers a few times. Oh. That's who, that, that, that folk, famous folk song? Correct. Folk group. Correct. Um, he, he opens for them a couple of times, and then um, Tommy Smothers uh, is not a big fan of Dylan at that time oh. and sort of suggests Walt Connolly maybe find, you know, find him another place to play. And so, so what happened? So then uh, Walt Connolly receives a call from Sophia St. John um, up in Central City at the Gilded Garter, who inquires about any talent that might be available to fill in some gigs up there, and Walt suggests Bob, and so Bob hitchhikes up to Central City. So his time was really short in Denver. Absolutely. Yeah. But Denver's music scene did leave a pretty good impression on on Dylan, in particular a musician he saw perform named Jesse Lone Cat Fuller, and Fuller was a one-man blues band. He played several instruments, including the guitar, harmonica, and drums, what influence did he have on Dylan? I, Dylan recorded um, one of You're No Good on his first album, so uh-huh. clearly his music alone had an influence, but his pr- stage presence, uh, particularly the use of the harmonica um, while he, uh, accompanying him on guitar, had a huge influence on, on Dylan, obviously. And every time you see a person playing the harmonica and strumming a guitar, you think of Dylan. You think of Dylan. Well, here's You're No Good by uh, Dylan. Let's take a listen to that. Great. Ain't got the ways of a devil sleeping in the lion's den I come home last night, you wouldn't even let me in Well, sometimes you're as sweet as anybody wanna be When you get a crazy notion jumping all over me When you give me the blues, I guess you're satisfied And you give me the blues, I wanna lay down and die So you definitely hear that harmonica there, that, oh, yeah. that classic harmonica. But you say this had a Denver had a good impression on Dylan, but not so much Dylan on Denver. You talked about the Smothers Brothers. Why was he not well liked here when he first came? Well, as I suggested in the article, uh, Denver was a uh, rolling in the dust type of guitar player uh, performer, and I say, as I suggest, this is a Kings- this was a Kingston trio type of town, yeah. very polished very clean. Um, most performers were wearing blazers and ties. And and, and Dylan, Dylan was not? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, grapes of, uh, straight out of the Grapes of Wrath appearance. Kind of ragtag looking a little yeah, exactly, bit. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So what's the story behind Dylan's quote, I was run out of Denver for robbing a cat's house? The story behind that is Dylan was, as a guest at Walt Connolly's house, uh, sleeping on the floor one or two nights, um, helped himself to some records. After the Central City gig, he came back to Denver uh-huh. and helped himself to some records, took them over to the room he was renting at the Bellevue Motel next to the Exodus. And Dick, uh, Dave Hamill um, happened to own some of those records. He was a local musician as well. I see. He... Uh, basically surmised that it was Dylan that took the records uh, and confronted him at the hotel. Uh, Dylan would not let him search the room. Uh, he denied having them. and um, 
it was a small town musically, I'm assuming, and word got around that Ex- he was maybe a thief. Yes, yes, word got <laughs> out. Uh, and um, eventually the records were discovered by Dave Hamill. And and there we go. <laughs> and yeah, and his and his and his reputation was tainted at that point in the town. And um, he soon, uh, within within a couple days after that incident, he had actually went back to Minneapolis. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm speaking with Tim Fritz. He's a freelance writer and filmmaker in Denver, and he recently wrote an article for Westward. It was called Passing Through, Bob Dylan's Ill-Fated Summer in Denver. So did you contact the Denver Police Department to confirm any of this? Uh, they. I, I tried to contact them to look into just records and so forth, but due to retention, even even in the within the police department, those records are long gone. I, I mean, I guess there could be one person that could, you know, explain the the validity and the truth of this story, I, right? Yeah, yeah. There's one person who could tell us everything, but he's not speaking, <laughs> and he's not telling anybody <laughs> anything. <laughs> uh, Dylan wrote a song in 1961 called "Colorado Blues." Uh, will you read a few lines from that? Yes. Got Colorado blues, I feel so bad, thinking about the times I once had had. Central City ain't no friend of mine. Denver Town's a sad kind of place to stay. I wish I was back in the good old USA. So that follows the story, as you said, pretty pretty closely. Why did he never record that? I suspect... I suspect his um, not recording it uh, is due to his not wanting to acknowledge that that perhaps uh, Denver wasn't a success for him. Hmm. And I believe that's why it wasn't ever recorded and and it never acknowledged. <laughs> but Dylan did come back to Denver uh, in February 1964. He had a concert at the Civic Auditorium Theater, and he got a much different reception that time around than his first time in the city. What did Denver audiences think of him at that time? At that time, he was uh, the phenomenon uh, uh, that that he continued to be. Um, there was still some, I think there was still some animosity by those that remembered Dylan coming through town. Mm-hmm. Um, and even Dennis Riley, who did the review. He, He's a reviewer a bit, for a newspaper. It, for the Rocky Mountain News, mm-hmm. even, even was a bit snarky in his review of the concert, was looking for a polished version of a folk musician and again found somebody who sort of didn't live by any of those rules and and it shows and it shows in his art in his review and that's also um, noted in in my article as well some excerpts from that review you've been a fan of Bob Dylan for more than 15 years Correct. Uh, briefly what got you interested in this bit of Dylan history uh, I was working uh, as a law librarian at a law firm down in, in the city of Denver that is far from Dylan as you could get yes yes quite <laughs> far Um and spent my lunches walking around downtown and um, was reading Bob Spitz's book, Biography of Dylan, mm-hmm. and realized here I am walking past where the Exodus once had stood and decided right there to um, do some actual, you know, some in-depth research as to where exactly the Exodus was, where exactly this room was, where this alley was, where supposedly the albums were thrown out the window when they, it was discovered he had taken them. And basically, just it just snowballed from there. And you plan to make a documentary about this, right? Exactly, yes. So how is the process of that, filming and, and, and finding people to be part of this documentary? Um, it's, it's ongoing. Um, it's interviewing those that were here. It's interviewing those that were here even, um, even after that time. Um, it, 
it's 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 been quite difficult. A lot yeah. of those people are gone. A lot of the people are gone that that uh, were there were there at that time. I recently interviewed Dave Hamill um, in Las Vegas, actually, about the record incident, and 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 there's a lot more to the story that will will be uh, included in the documentary. So you know Dylan, I think a bit. Um, he is being awarded the Nobel Prize tomorrow, but he's not going there to accept the award. He's he's writing written a speech and sending that on. Do, do you have any idea why you think he'd not pick up his prize in person? I I, I wish I could tell you. I, I think that um, I think that the hype. I think Dylan enjoys the hype that surrounds him, but I also think he feels uh, he's nervous to recognize that. And um, I think that he's sort of always um, saw himself simply as a song and dance man and, and, and acknowledging that would, would suggest otherwise. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Tim Fritz is a freelance writer and filmmaker in Denver. He wrote a piece for Westward called Passing Through, Bob Dylan's Ill-Fated Summer in Denver. Find a link to that story at cprnews.org. Still to come, an Aurora man follows in the photographic footsteps of his great-great-grandfather. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Colorado photographer Joseph Collier gained fame in the late 1800s for his images of Colorado, from shots of downtown Telluride to the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs to the Brown Palace Hotel. More than 100 years later, his great-great-grandson Grant photographed the exact same spots. Grant Collier has compiled them in his new coffee table book, Colorado Then and Now. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Joseph Collier was born in Scotland in 1836, went to school for chemistry for a little bit, and then eventually became a blacksmith. Uh, But this debilitating work uh, caused him to kind of look into photography. Tell us a little bit about Joseph. Uh, How did his work go beyond the traditional photography of that time? Yeah, I think, well, when he started, he sort of learned all the basics and uh, all the traditional um, wet, wet plate process at the time. But then he, he, he was always, always experimenting with di- different techniques. Uh-huh. And one big thing he did was uh, he, he did photographic enlargements. At the time, people could usually just printed the images at the same size as the negatives. But he really wanted to make some really big prints. So he actually built his own solar solar camera, which is what it, basically uh, the same as a, an, an, an enlarger today. And he printed really big prints, and he actually got uh, fairly famous for uh, being one of the best photographers in the world at making really big prints of his images. Because before it was very tiny because they were, like you said, just the size of a negative in a sense. Yeah, so usually prints were maybe 5 by 7 if they were shooting with 5 by 7 negatives. So he was one of the first to actually expand uh, the images much larger. So he came to Colorado, where he lived in Central City and then in Denver. And we know that Joseph was well-known during his day. In 1873, he presented stereographic images of Colorado to the First Lady of the U.S., Julia Grant. And newspapers of the day called his work some of the finest specimens of stereoscopic views ever seen. Can you give other examples of how he became to be so well-known? Yeah, that's one of the big things with the stereo views, which were actually for uh, people who don't know, there were two images uh, printed side by side, with uh, taken with a camera with two lenses mounted about three inches apart. 
And if you used a stero uh, stereoscopic viewer, you could actually view the images in 3D, which is really cool to think that way back then they were doing 3D images. And I actually have a stereo view viewer of my own, and I've viewed, viewed some of his images, and it's really cool to see the 3D effect. There is a really strong 3D effect with those. And he also became one of the very first people um, to print these images on directly on the glass plate negatives. So they were positive images, kind of like slides. Uh, and and so he was really one of the f f first first photographers to ever do that in and the United States. to project those on screens for people? And, and yeah, and then he went around and did uh, presentations um, for Denver, and then a couple of pro professors went around all the U.S. Uh, showing all his images uh, to people all, all around the U.S. using those uh, basically slides. And the L.A.'s Getty Museum even has a few of those stereoscopic images uh, I, I saw. Uh, when he moved to Denver, he was was he part of the city's high society? I, I know he lived next to uh, Denverites Horace and Baby Doe Tabor, the, the well-known but scandalous millionaires. Yeah, I don't think he really knew them. I know he lived near them. But okay. I, yeah, I don't, think, I don't think he was part of the high society. He, he seemed to be a pretty... Uh, a frugal, frugal person, and a <laughs> but to live next to them, of course, was quite the yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. So it was. A <laughs> Your great great grandfather took hundreds of photographs in Colorado of everything from mining towns to mountain vistas. Why did you want to recreate his photographic steps? Um, I guess growing up, I sort of always knew about his images, and then I got a job digitizing thousands of Colorado photographs, including a lot of his. And that really got me interested in his photographs. And I just wanted to sort of see how things had changed since he had taken his images. And I decided I might as well take my camera with me and record record some of his images. And I was still in college way back then when I was doing that. But it sort of uh, grew into a bigger project as I really got uh, got to know his photographs. So did you take up photography strictly to, to follow his footsteps? Or were you into photography before? No, I had gotten into phot photography a little bit before that. And uh -huh. I figured it would be a good way when I decided to try to make a living as a photographer. I decided it would be a good way to get myself established as a photographer. And Grant, you found similar or exact spots where Joseph took his photos over 100 years ago. Is there an area that you photographed that looks strikingly similar or strikingly different? Yeah. Well, obviously, Denver looks a lot different today because they destroyed uh, most of the buildings to make room for apartment comp complexes and high-rises. And so that's the starkest difference by far. A lot of the color of mountain towns haven't changed a whole lot, like Idaho Springs, um, even places like Central City, although um, there's a ton of gambling going on right now, but a lot of the historic buildings in Central City are very similar. Uh, and Blackhawk is a lot different because now there's some huge casinos there. So they've really taken divergent uh, uh, courses in, since gambling has has emerged. Has technology helped? You say you've you found you know, used Google Maps and things to find sites. Has technology helped you? Because some of these places are kind of often, you know, you have to take a hike. Yeah, yeah, it definitely helped me a lot. In my first book, it was uh, I started in 1995. And so the Internet was fairly new, and I couldn't find a lot of information then. So it was a lot harder to find the locations. Uh, the second book, which I just uh, released uh, this last month, it was a lot, quite a bit easier because, yeah, I could get online, get on Google, or sometimes I'd find the exact spot that he was standing before ever leaving my house. I just entered the GPS coordinates and go right there. So it definitely, uh, even in 20 years' time, it's definitely changed, <laughs> made it a lot, lot easier. What is one of your favorite photos? There are about how many, like 200 or something photos that you may have taken, you know, side by side? And Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, yeah, yeah, probably 200 to 
total then and now between my first and second book. Yeah. Uh, the more recent has close to 100. So which one stood out for you? Which one you're like, wow, that's that's a great story? Yeah, uh, there's there's definitely uh, quite a few that are that are interesting. Um, one taken in Garden of the Gods, there were uh, people camping right between Garden of the Gods and Glen Erie, and I was uh, trying to find the exact spot, and I I was sure I was right near the, the correct correct location, but the mountains just didn't match in the two shots. And I've learned that mountains don't change over a hundred years. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and then I went home and I, I looked it up, and I found that. It, it, the Queens Canyon quarry had actually taken a big chunk out of the mountain. So I realized I wasn't going crazy and I was at the right spot. <laughs> but yeah, the mountain, it's actually now called Scar Mountain. So it, the mountain had been chopped off and that really surprised me because I wasn't expecting that. So. And you found this has brought you closer to your, your family history. Yeah, it definitely has. I've, uh, I wrote the book as well as taking the photographs. And so I did a lot of research on Joseph Collier. And especially with the second book, I was able to find a lot more information online that I couldn't find before. And it really made me appreciate all that he did back then as it was so much more difficult to take photographs back then than it is today, obviously. And so it has uh, – I do have a lot more appreciation for what he did. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Arvada author and photographer Grant Collier, his book Colorado Then and Now, traces the photographic footsteps of his great-great-grandfather, photographer Joseph Collier. We've created a really neat way to interact with Grant and Joseph's photographs online at CPR.org. Colorado, Colorado, escape the city. Coming up, it was 46 years in the making, but jam band Magic Music is finally releasing an album. We'll talk with a founding member. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. They've been called Colorado's first jam band and were destined to become huge stars. In the 1970s, a group of young, long-haired musicians gathered in the mountains of Colorado. They lived in school buses, cabins, an old donut truck, and even a few teepees. But the self-proclaimed hippie group Magic Music never released a single album and broke up in 1976. Still, they remained very well-known in music venues across Denver and Boulder. Flash forward 46 years. Music... Uh, Magic Music has reunited and in September created the band's eponymous release. Yeah. We're joined by one of the group's founding members, Chris Daniels, who is also an assistant professor at the University of Colorado, Denver. Chris, welcome back to the program. Hey, it's great <laughs> to be back here, my friend. Let's hear a little bit uh, from this new Magic Music album. The song is called Bright Sun, Bright Rain.
When you're performing in Boulder and Denver in the 1970s, you attracted huge crowds, and people may still remember you playing the second and third annual uh, Telluride Bluegrass Festival. Right. People clearly had a desire for your music. Why didn't you make an album before now? Well, it's kind of a long story. We kept trying. We um, uh, Barry Faye sent us out to New York City. He's the Denver promoter. Right, the old Denver promoter. We played out there, and one guy was at the Village Gaslight, and he wanted us to stand up because we all sat down and add drums and all of that kind of stuff and uh, we didn't want to change that way Um, so we added a drummer (laughs) of course he played tabla not what they had in mind (laughs) and um, then uh, other trips we went out to Nashville a guy in Nashville who was going to sign us actually was recording the band underneath the table trying to steal the tunes and wanted to steal the publishing, so that didn't work out. Went to Los Angeles, Asylum offered us a deal, but they wanted us to add drums and strings and do everybody else's songs, a bunch of other songs, not our own stuff. And then finally we got a, a, um, a real live offer from Rounder Records subsidiary called Flying Fish, uh-huh. and we broke up. <laughs> <laughs> so you were, it wasn't because you didn't want to have no, a hit song. No, we would have loved to just... have gotten a record out. It was just the... You know, we we really weren't interested in in changing the way that we weren't listening to radio. We weren't listening to other things going on, and so it was it, it was very insular music. You lived in teepees, as we heard. You lived <laughs> yes. in a school bus. You yep. lived in you know their ice cream trucks or things. I'm just yeah. you know, what was it like back then living? in Boulder like that? Well, we started out, the band started out in Eldorado Canyon, and uh, the founder of the band, Lynn Flatbush Poyer, and George Toad Cahill met up with a crazy guy from Martha's Vineyard, Will Lucky, and uh, they all got together and started writing songs, and it was one of the coldest winters in Colorado. So you were in these tin cans, which is a <laughs> school bus, be sleeping soundly, and the fire goes out in the middle of the night, and you wake up in the morning because of your breath, you create a cloud, so it's snowing inside <laughs> the bus. <laughs> now, the music on this new album is, yeah. in fact, music that you played back then, right? Yeah, we, it was the songs that were written then, and one of the dear friends of the band, Tim Goodman, who is a part of the Denver scene, um, had an incredible career with Southern Pacific. Um, he was a friend of the band. He and Will were childhood friends. And we started working on the record, and he said, boy, I'd love to help, and let me come in and do some production, and really took over in the producing and brought in lots of wonderful people, um, people that he knew, um, chance encounters, Scarlett Rivera from Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder Review. It was They were sitting talking at Fred Wallachie's music store and said, well, how about coming and playing some tracks? Well, let's hear another song. This is Bring the Morning Down. is Bring the Morning Down. It, it sounds like you could have written that in the mountains outside of Boulder. 
That's that's one of Willie's tunes. That's one of the great tunes that he brought to it. Why now? Why so long after you break up? You broke up in 1976. Right. And you could have gotten together multiple times before now. Well, we, we stayed together as friends. We followed each other's career. Obviously, I, you know, I toured around and eventually started Chris Daniels and the Kings and, mm-hmm. you know, been doing that for years. And, um, and you we'll, teach at CU Denver. Yes, I teach at CU Denver, which is really funny. I walked in here and I saw three of my students who were down at open air. Um, and so I, I love seeing my students. Let's just keep running across <laughs> them. So it was great. And um, but we stayed in touch, and our old mon- manager uh, Sloth started doing reunions. So we started playing at the reunions, and I got very sick in about 2010. I mm. uh, was diagnosed with leukemia, and thanks to a bone marrow transplant from my sister, I'm sitting here talking to you. And afterwards, they figured, okay, that was a close call. So we got together and did a reunion at Swallow Hill. And um, we did the reunion, and the day after that, I said, let's go into the studio. So we because we wanted to capture those tunes. So we started working on it then. As I said, Timmy got involved and, and brought his expertise to it and really took the tunes that were of an era and tried to make them feel universal. So that, And they really do. I mean, you listen to these songs and they have that 70s exuberance, but they also have a modern sound to them. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel, and we're talking with Chris Daniels, one of the founding members of the Colorado jam band Magic Music, which released its one and only album in September. Is it hard finding that groove again that you had back in... Oh, no. That's the funniest part about it. As long as we don't think about the parts, we can play them. But if you start thinking, now, what was it that I play? It's gone. But it's, there's a, a motor memory that's there because we, we toured a lot for six years, we, you know, in Minneapolis and Phoenix and Los Angeles, all over the place, and these school bus traveling around. So we played a lot, and we lived together at the time. The hardest thing for this album, really, and the hardest thing for us now is that, you know, we have people living on Martha's Vineyard and Alabama and Los Angeles, and it's really hard to get us all together. Well, we, we did speak to one of the founding members, uh, Will Lucky, who Good. you mentioned, uh, and, and we asked him about getting the group back together. I can say pretty definitively that it is magic music because why we took three years, or at least three years, to put it all together. And because of the time of youth when we wrote some of that stuff, especially being myself and Chris are the writers of most of it, um, some of the stuff that, it, that was written was pretty wild, pretty euphoric, you know? (laughs) We went in and tried to change a few things around to make it a little more grown up, I guess would be the way to go. And it became apparent that you can't change anything in those snapshots. Those are songs pretty much like, just like we wrote them. And you're laughing, oh, uh, but you seem to agree with that, that you totally. can't change what you wrote back then because it is a snapshot of, of that time in your life. No, and we tried to change lyrics and, and you know, the arrangements were fun. It was Tim really helped with that with, you know, OK, let's let's think about here. But it's it's the essence of those songs. How do you measure success uh, today with this music? Because, like you say, it is kind of from a different era. Well, you know, at CU Denver, I'm teaching music business. So a lot of, I've been sort of the consultant for the band on that. And so a lot of what success is now, and especially for us, it's just getting this out. 
And that's the lovely thing, the access to the marketplace. I mean, my students talk about it as, look, we can get right to the marketplace. There isn't Warner Brothers or Asylum Records standing in the way. You can do this the way you want and get it right to the marketplace. So success for us is literally getting this out. And every piece above that is truly magical. Sorry about the pun. but <laughs> Pun intended. Yeah, yeah pun intended. <laughs> Has your audience diversified? <clears throat> Yeah, well, that's the fun thing. We have this ancient old crowd of wonderful old magic music fans and hippies. <laughs> and then we've got an entire new generation that's finding this music the same way as they're finding LPs. You know, the young people are the people who are buying vinyl. And they're going, there's something, you know, I could set down the cell phone, I open this double album, I put it on the record player, and I have to turn it over. And there's something that with that ritual that they find, they also find in this music. So my students are going, dude, this is great. <laughs> so it, it is, is social media, though, playing a, 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 <clears throat> a part huge in this? part of it. Yeah. We've got um, magicmusicband.com. And of course, Facebook is the same thing. And, and uh, so, yeah, it's a huge part of it. Not only do you have this album, uh, this vinyl album, as well as uh, MP3 downloads and things like that, but there's also a film in the works as well, right? <clears throat> yeah. Um, that's That was one of those serendipitous things. Literally, I uh, got an email from a guy and he said, uh, I'd, I'd be really interested in, in meeting with you because I was a fan of magic music. Turns out that uh, his name's Lee Aronson. If you ever watch Two and a Half Men, right at the beginning, you see Chuck Lauren, Lee yeah. and Aronson. He created that. And he'd been seeing Bring the Morning Down to his kids. And in true folk tradition, he didn't have a recording of it. So he just sort of remembered the words, and that was the lullaby he sang to his kids. And he said, well, I want to do a documentary. So he started that about a year and a half ago. It'll probably be released sometime in 2018. Um, and the title of the film is <clears throat> Everything right. is Floating. Everything is Floating. <laughs> and it's from the song The Cosmic Jingle. <laughs> yes, that's true. Here's this. Everything is floating and everyone is free. There's nothing I can call mine because everything is me. And don't you try to hold on it's got that psychedelic Beatles within you without yeah. you, doesn't it? Yeah. So this far on, you're a teacher now at CU Denver. Do you catch a lot of grief about, about that from your fellow musicians in the past? Like, yeah, you sold out, you're a teacher now? <laughs> no, actually, I think they all want my job. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. what, what's next then? Um, well, next, I'm hoping we do some shows this summer. Um, again, it's logistics because we have people all over the country and getting us together is the difficult part. But that's what we're hoping to do is some actual shows here in Colorado this summer. And then, uh, you know, come back here and 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 and, and talk about it. Yeah, and talk play. about it and play. <laughs> and actually, I'm doing uh, on uh, Sunday. I'm over at Swallow Hill with the Chris Daniels sort of wonderful party that we do. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, we'll see you Sunday night at Swallow Hill. Chris Daniels, assistant professor at CU Denver. He's also one of the founding members of the band Magic Music, which has recently released a recording of the same name and is a subject of an upcoming documentary. Thanks for joining us for Colorado Matters this Friday. I'm Nathan Heffel. Have a great weekend. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.